Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, book editor for Brown is the New White and director of strategic communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. What a week. Hey, Steve. What a week indeed. I mean, seriously, I, I can't believe what we've just witnessed over the past 24 hours, the past few days. And we knew it was going to be crazy, but maybe we didn't know how crazy it was going to be. And so much was uh, going to come down to this week, and so much has you know has transpired. So much has transpired. There have been so many changes. Anyway, here we are on the other side of Super Tuesday, and um, I'm really excited to just get into it, talk about trying to make sense of what just happened over Super Tuesday, and even get into the past few days and talk about where we are right now with the race, where things stand, and where do we go from here. But first, I'd like to just introduce and explain to our listeners something exciting that we have, that we want to share, that we've created. It's a new initiative that we're starting at Democracy in Color, and we're calling it How to Help. And I thought, Steve, why don't you do the honors in explaining what it's all about? Yeah, and I think one of the the most common questions people want to know, something I know I get asked all the time is, what can I do? Right. How can I help the movement to change for change in this country? Um, how can I be participating and make a make a real difference? And so then everybody has right limited time and energy, and then the needs are so vast, the attacks so widespread, it can really get overwhelming in really trying to make sense of what can you really do. So to help address that question, we're launching the How to Help initiative, and every week we're going to share our recommendation for something you can do that will be a strategic contribution to the overall movement to take back our country. And so we'll be releasing these actions each week on our email list and as well as also on our social media platforms. So if you're not following us currently, you can sign up at democracyandcolor.com or follow us on our Facebook or Twitter account. Yeah, so I'm really glad that we're doing this uh, over the course of our work with Democracy in Color. I've been asked often, people will say, how can I help? And especially during this administration, this just times can feel really challenging. People really want to feel like they are being given some directives on the best way to make a difference. And so I'm really hoping that our new initiative, How to Help, will offer people some hope and some direction. And we'd love to hear back from folks on what they think about it. And so, Steve, what's our first recommendation with our How to Help? So our first action is to encourage people to support Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia this November. He's the actual successor to Martin Luther King in that he's now the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which was Dr. King's church. And he's also working to carry on the social change legacy of King. He's been a very strong voice and a passionate advocate for social justice and equality. And politically, he's been a close ally of Stacey Abrams. And Stacey actually really encouraged him to get into the race. She's actually been encouraging him for a number of years to run. So in addition to who he is and the substance of that, his, in the larger context, his campaign is also critically important for Democrats if we're going to try to take back the Senate. So we need a net gain of three seats in the Senate plus the White House. And this is one of the most winnable races and that he has a chance to build on the foundation that Stacey Abrams laid in her gubernatorial bid. And he's been doing that, and so the numbers and the demographics make it possible if he has sufficient support. 
So it's both a strategic political step, and he's also the kind of inspiring leader I think people feel really good about getting behind. So we like to encourage people to contribute what they can to his campaign, whether it's $5 or $500, if you're blessed to be in that income category. He's going to need a large national network of small donors. So his website is warnockforgeorgia.com, W-A-R-N-O-C-K, F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A dot com. So that's how to help this week. Thanks for that, Steve. And again, you, uh, all the listeners out there, you can sign up to get weekly reminders about our how to help by going to democracyincolor.com. That's democracyincolor.com. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's talk about the presidential race and uh, the primary race Races that just happened over Super Tuesday. And Steve, what are your top takeaways from this crazy week we just had in American politics? Very, very crazy. Somebody was tweeting that they they've been following politics for 35 years and never seen a, like a 72-hour period like this. So I have three big takeaways and one enormous question. The first takeaway is that I think that Joe Biden is now the front runner, if not the likely Democratic nominee. So I know we're going to get into that more in a minute um, when we look at the numbers. The second takeaway is that the entire trajectory of this race and the essence of Joe Biden's political life and prospects are the result of the actions of black people. From being picked by a black man to be vice president to the voters of South Carolina and then Super Tuesday, who has brought his campaign back from the dead. And then the third takeaway is that the office of the vice president matters a lot. Yeah, I was joking, right, uh, when I was texting you that someone should get Joe a shirt that says, thanks, Obama, and then probably (laughs) also on that shirt, thank you, black voters. Exactly. Right? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what black voters did for Biden. When we kind of look at coming out of the Nevada caucuses less than two weeks ago, it really seemed that Bernie had all the momentum. And in fact, you were slacking us, Steve, a bunch of us, that you thought Bernie was going to be the nominee because at that point, that's really what it seemed like. Yeah, that didn't age as well as <laughs> the time. But these are the times, right, that we're, yeah. we're in, um, in this race. It's like, don't blink. Don't get too wedded to your analysis and predictions because guess what? You just never know, especially, I think, over the past week. Things were changing so quickly. And then, in fact, Steve, you even wrote an op-ed, a really good op-ed for the New York Times showing the math behind how Bernie could beat Trump, which I would say in terms of the math you laid out in that article, because it was about Bernie beating Trump, it is still relevant, still really worth checking out. Uh, And I'm just, you know, so I'm just going to plug that article to our listeners. That article came out on February 28th, and it's titled, Bernie Sanders Can Beat Trump, Here's the Math. And we will put that link in the show notes. And even if you're not a Bernie supporter, I just, again, think it's really fascinating to see the math broken down. And maybe especially if you're not a Bernie supporter, just check it out and read it because uh, I think people have been having a tendency to freak out about what will happen if he wins the nomination, if he's the nominee, as if there's no chance for him to win um, or they just don't know you know, what that would look like. Your article really spells it out. So, uh, Steve, let's talk about what happened in terms of like how did how did Biden get back in? Because I remember very clearly what feels like just yesterday, which was just a few days ago. <laughs> I think he was just on I keep just picturing it like he was on the ropes. That's like my metaphor is like right. somebody who's a fighter who looked a tired, beleaguered and defeated and didn't look like there was going to be a way he could get back up. 
Yeah, no, I was I was back in D.C. It was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and that you know very very you know, prominent Democratic leader was saying Biden's dead, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he's definitely been brought back, and so you know the short answer is black folk spoke, right? There went there was one of these journalists I can't remember who was saying that the primaries don't start until African Americans start voting, and that's exactly what happened in two thousand eight. There was the black vote in South Carolina that launched Obama to him running the table throughout the southern states that gave him his insurmountable delegate lead. And then similarly in 2016, Sanders and Clinton split the early states, and then Clinton did overwhelmingly well among African Americans in South Carolina that put her in an unassailable position. So in the South Carolina election that we just had, African Americans were the majority of all of the voters, and they went for Biden by 44 points. And then, once African Americans in other states saw that Biden's campaign was not doomed, they came out in huge numbers for him on Super Tuesday, propelling him to strong finishes, first place finishes in Alabama, Virginia, North Carolina, Texas, and um, several other states. And interestingly, not only did black votes propel Biden to the front of the race with his own votes, but they also signaled to white people that Biden was the viable candidate. I was listening to the podcast, uh, The Daily, and they spent the whole episode talking, on the March 3rd episode, talking to this white guy from, Virgi- from Virginia who actually knew Biden for 30 years and knew he, like, he picked Biden up when he came to speak at his college campus in the late 80s. And he had drifted away. And he he lost his conviction that Biden should be the person to go for. And only when the South Carolina vote happened, he was like, oh, well, maybe I should look back to him. So the black vote didn't just in and of itself. It also signaled to white people all over the country. And cumulatively, that's really what enabled him to do so well on Super Tuesday. Uh, That's all just it's fascinating how it's like this domino effect. Right. And the way the signaling happened and so quickly. What I wanted to talk about, Steve, is like, I don't think it was shocking that he got the majority of the African-American vote since he was polling high with African-American voters this whole cycle, which we've talked about in a number of our episodes. But I think for me personally, I was a bit surprised by how large the percentage numbers were for African-American voters and the votes that he was able to get from that voting bloc. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. For example, now that we've got the numbers, you know, what we found, what we saw in South Carolina, 61 percent of the black vote went to Biden. And then he went on to get 72 percent of the black vote in Alabama, 62 percent in Virginia and 58 percent in Texas. So overall, he received 71 percent of the African-American vote on Super Tuesday. And just wanted to hear your thoughts some more on those particular numbers. Yeah, and I think it drives home the point that we talked about in this prior episode about the white man's bum, right? Because there's so much of the underlying assumption in the election has been, well, you have to have a white guy because you've got to be able to appeal to these swing white voters. But in point of fact, as we're seeing right now, it's the black voters who have been the most pivotal. But that hasn't been factored into people's electoral calculus. And I think as we talked about before, I think that is really was a key part of why Cory Booker and Kamala Harris were not able to get traction because of that assumption. But as we're seeing that assumption was incorrect. And so looking at why Biden was able to do so well, that it's really, I think, two particular points that I do think are critical. And we have talked about that somewhat before in our, in our more previous episodes. But it's really relationships and longevity. And so obviously the most important relationship with Biden being with Barack Obama, right? I think I had 
Let and Shory Reid show on MSNBC that you know some of Biden's campaigns that he has one really famous black friend, and so, but that's not at all inconsequential. But it was very strong validation. To yeah, I guess black in that people. case, you only need one. Well, if it's that, if it's that one, <laughs> if it's that it's, one, it's that that one, one, then you only, only need, need one. <laughs> and then the other critical relationship was in South Carolina with Congressman Jim Clyburn, again, who Biden has known for a long time. And so Clyburn is like a, a giant in South Carolina politics. And so when he endorsed, it sent a strong single signal of validation that people should stick with him. So those uh, relationship pieces were critical. And then the other is longevity, right? Uh, it was 12 years ago that Obama picked uh, Biden to be vice president. So he's had a long run. and People have become very familiar with him as the partner for the first black president. And then I think Bernie's challenge is that both in 2016 and also this year, though he'd made some more progress this year, is that his whole career has been rooted in Vermont. And Vermont is literally one of the least black states in the country, right? I mean, it does have some of the most progressive white people. I still remember uh, Jesse Jackson won Vermont in 88, and then I've obviously sent this you know, avowed socialist back to the Senate on a regular basis. But it's culturally as well as geographically a long way from South Carolina. And so the connection and the resonance wasn't there in the same way of somebody who had a much longer track record. Yeah. So you had said that you had another takeaway about the importance of, in particular, the office of vice president. What did, what did you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, if we didn't know it before, we sure know it now that that office matters, that there are tremendous structural political advantages that accrue to the vice president in terms of name recognition, track record, fundraising, and perhaps most importantly, benefit of the doubt. It clearly wasn't Joe Biden's skilled campaigner who won all these races. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> no, it was the former vice president. By all objective criteria, Biden has been a bad candidate. His debate performances, he struggled with fundraising, he lost all the early contests. But people were willing to overlook all of that because they were desperate to be Trump. And they gave him the benefit of the doubt about his competence and abilities because he had, he had been in that office previously. And that tied then to this enormous question that I have, is who will he select for his vice president? Is the that's nominee- right. That's the big question That's, the, that's, that's the, the big question. dominant question. So it's not just choosing a running mate. I think this was something that got lost in 2016. People didn't understand why I was so upset that Clinton had chosen Tim Kaine. It's not just the making a particular person to run with that person, which is significantly important. You're also setting up potentially the next president. Who are you gonna give all of these advantages to in terms of what the future is going to hold in terms of running for office. And so that is really what this much of the struggle and conversation is really going to have to be about heading forward in terms of what the next major decision is going to be for whoever is going to be the nominee. And I know that you know that we are hoping and I know that you're hoping that it'll be Stacey Abrams. And a lot of people, we're not alone. It's no. a, There's a lot of I stand Stacey Abrams Yeah, uh, absolutely. Fans I mean, out Stacey there. is the person who I absolutely think should be, and I've been you know, quite clear about that, and not, not just because she was our first podcast guest when we launched the podcast, um, and not just because I've known her all these years, but it's actually because I've known her, I know how strategic and sophisticated and savvy that she is with a long-term perspective. Right? I think I talked in a previous podcast about personally, particularly since the, you know, the, all the candidates of color dropped out, I'm less focused on this presidential race in terms of my emotional energy than in terms of what's the long-term strategic play. And so that's where the vice president comes in is, can we have a vice president who can be a partner to the social justice movement throughout the, the next eight years and then lay the groundwork to become the next president to really advance an agenda from there? 
So that's a big part of why I'm behind Stacey. And then also, the ticket does need somebody like her, if not her herself. I mean, it's amazing with these exit polls. Biden just gets 9% of the vote of young people. So he's wow. desperately going to need the help of somebody who can inspire and motivate and come from a younger demographic. Wow, definitely. By the way, there's a great article that just came out recently by Tessa Stewart in Rolling Stone that breaks down how Stacey Abrams has been meticulously planning and building political power for the past 20 years. And I think you and I have had greater insight to that, both through your relationship with her and a lot of the conversations we've had with her. But I feel like a lot of people don't know that. And and for some people, they may feel like, well, who is this young woman? Where did she come from? Right? They, you know, some people are just learning about her for the first time. So that article I wanted to have listeners check out. It's titled, Stacey Abrams is Building a New Kind of Political Machine in the Deep South. And that article came out on March 1st. Okay, now let's talk about what we think is going to happen. And again, we know this race <laughs> just because we think we know, well, we think we're going to make some predictions about what we think is going to happen today. We may look down at our phones and find out that things have changed That's further. Right. We should hit refresh. <laughs> Actually, I did an I interview, the, we I did an interview this morning at KPFA, <laughs> and in the middle of the interview, the guy interrupts and says, hold on, hold on, Bloomberg just dropped out, right? So this stuff is changing very, very dramatically. By the minute. But let's do our best and, you know, go with what we've got. And so like we do, we do what we do. Let's get into the math. So to do that, we always like to turn to our data expert, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega. And so let's see if the doctor is in. Doctor's office, please hold for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hey, y'all. Hey, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Let me ask you, were you up late last night with your spreadsheets, nerding out and all fired up, uh, calculating all the numbers, trying to figure out what happened and make sense of it with numbers? Yeah, it was a crazy night. All election nights in general are crazy, right? But Super Tuesday especially is, you know, you sort of go in expecting it to. But last night was kind of off the charts when it comes to data nerd heaven. I know Julia was up late because it was past my bedtime in the West Coast and Julia was still like posting things and uh, talking about the election. So thank you for joining us, doctor. And I'm hoping you can help us understand the prognosis for the remaining candidates in the race and what is likely to happen in the next month or two. Votes are still being counted in California and frankly probably be counted for another few weeks. We won't know exactly, and, that, and being the biggest state, that's gonna be pretty important. But it certainly seems pretty clear that Biden is in the lead. And so what it does the data tell you about whether that means that he's going to be the nominee? So one of the roles of a doctor is to be honest with the patient and not sugarcoat things, right? So I have to say that looking at the available data, Biden is likely to win the nomination. All right, Doc, I, I need to let, you know, I, sometimes maybe I want things sugarcoated. <laughs> it's like I need to have that information said sometimes in a different way. No, I, I totally get that. But I'm curious, the media right now is saying it's a two-person race. It's a two-person race. And yet I'm hearing you're saying... Biden is likely to win the nomination like that's pretty much almost a fact and deal. So I want to talk about that and I want to have you help us understand why, Julie. 
But can you first give us a quick refresher course on how the Democratic nomination process works for us to get to the point of a nominee? Sure. So it's laid out in a pretty straightforward way. You need about 2,000 delegates to win the Democratic nomination. And so to review how that works, basically every state's allocated a certain number of delegates. And that number is proportional to the population size as well as sort of past performance among Dems in that state. So California, which is the largest state, has 415 delegates. Iowa, which is much smaller but is first in the nation, that one only has 41 delegates up for grabs, right? So the total number of delegates at play in all of the states in the whole country is about 4,000. And delegates are awarded in accordance with the vote percentage that a candidate gets in a state and that somewhat complicated process that has to do with the geography within the state. But we don't need to get into all that at this point. So Biden got half the vote in South Carolina. So basically, he gets about half of the delegates from that state coming out of there. And the formula is actually a bit more complicated, as I said, but those are the broad strokes, right? So to become the nominee, a candidate has to win as many delegates as possible in as many states as possible. And by that, they accumulate about 2,000 delegates. And that sort of bring, you know, you go to the convention and if you've got 2,000 delegates, you're golden, you're in. It's very straightforward from there. Okay, so I got it. It's a race to whoever can get 2,000 delegates out of 4,000 total. And currently, just to remind everyone, we have just over 1,500 delegates accounted for after Super Tuesday. So where do things stand today after Super Tuesday in terms of delegates for each candidate? So with the caveat that not all the states have finished their counting, after Super Tuesday, so as we sit here on Wednesday, uh, when everything's been counted, it looks like Biden will be ahead. NPR, as of about an hour ago, when I last checked, has him with 566 delegates, and Bernie's got 501. And there are 197 delegates that have already been chosen by the voters to date, but they still need to be allocated. So those will split somewhat between those two and perhaps a few might go to some of the others. But that's very dependent on the particularities of how each state's counting. So, yeah, I think the important thing for people to realize and pay attention to is the margin between the leading candidates. And so that's going to be what's going to shape this race going forward. And I've seen this play itself out over several elections over the past X decades. I won't out myself in terms of my age. But the question is going to be, can the person behind catch up in terms of what actually happens in the, in the, in the subsequent contest, right? So, you know, one of the actually most exciting you know, certainly pre-Obama political days of my life was when it was when Jesse Jackson won Michigan in 1988, and that put him in first place in March of 2008, which was in fact kind of lost to history. But then Duke Caucus ultimately caught him and surpassed him when the big white states voted Ohio and Pennsylvania, et cetera. And then conversely, in 2008, when Obama was ahead, we kept worrying that Clinton might catch up. I'm actually worried all the way up until Obama accepted the nomination. But we were running a super PAC at the time, and I would write these campaign updates to people on a regular basis, and it'd be like, they'd see these contests, and in some of the races, Hillary might win by a little bit, but Obama had a 120-delegate vote lead. And I kept saying, don't worry, we're going to win, we're going to win, she can't catch up the way that the delegates are allocated. And then I remember in, in May of that year, when Obama won North Carolina and Indiana, and a very white state Indiana, and those were towards the end of the contest, I remember thinking to myself, we really are going to win, right? <laughs> that was like a really you know, dramatic moment. So, but the question is, how do these subsequent races impact 
the capacity to catch the person up ahead. So, Julie, what does your analysis show about whether Bernie can catch Biden? Yeah, so there are obviously a lot of variables that make it hard to really accurately predict. But based on the data that we have available today, it's more likely than not that Biden will get more delegates than Sanders over the rest of the race and in the convention with at least a plurality of delegates, if not that full 2,000 that he's going to need to win. It's it's actually 1,991 delegates, but it's close enough to 2,000. And remember, that has to do with the fact that we don't do winner-take-all in the Democratic Party. So even if somebody wins, the other person, especially in a two-person race, is going to be collecting a few delegates, you know, with each state as the race unfolds. Yeah, and that's actually an important point I want to emphasize for a moment, because the way the media covers it is like, so-and-so won this state. And then there's great implications attached to that, because they won this state, or then the other person won that state. But what counts is the delegate allocation. And delegates are awarded proportionally. So if a a state has 100 delegates and one person gets wins the state with 51% and the other goes 49%, the delegates are basically half and half. So it's not that winning that state actually gives you that big of an advantage or a boost in terms of accruing delegates, and particularly in terms of being able to catch the person ahead of you. Julie, I wanted to ask you, I heard, heard you say when you were talking earlier that more likely than not, Biden will get more delegates than Sanders. So I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering, what are you basing that on? Right. So now that we're down to what's essentially a two-person race, as we were in 2016, we can look at the percentage. We can sort of build a model based off what happened in 2016, right? So we can look at the percentage of the vote that Sanders got in 16 and give him that percentage of the vote in each state again, and then give Biden the votes that Clinton got in 2016. So we attribute how she did to Biden. And that set of calculations basically leads to Biden reaching the magic 1,900 91 by a hair as he enters the convention. Now, we know it's not going to all unfold exactly as it did back then, but it just gives us it's it's a gauge against which we can sort of measure, you know, what we expect to have happen unless something really unusual were to occur. So after the March 10th round of primaries, Sanders will make up some ground thanks to Arizona and Washington state. But on March 17th, Florida and Georgia voters uh, will most likely swing to Biden. And remember that Georgia's African-Americans comprise 68 percent of the Democratic registered voters. And in Florida, they're 28 percent. So that has a lot to do with what we anticipate happening in this next go round. Yeah, no, actually, I I think that Georgia is the 24th. And I think I know that because I was trolling Cory Booker's campaign manager, Adisu, who's from Atlanta, but doesn't root for their basketball team by asking if his team was going to be voting on that day. Um, But I think Julie's point is correct, that those are states that's going to actually be working in in Biden's favor. But so that in terms of the fundamental assumption, Julie, what do we think about, will 16 replicate itself in 20? Is Biden going to get what Hillary got? Is Bernie going to get the same, less or more um, than he got in 2016? And it's interesting to me because he has so far actually underperformed the 2016 numbers. What's your assessment about that um, assumption? Yeah, so that's going to be the critical question for the rest of the contest, especially as Biden makes that shift from being the underdog for the past few weeks to the front runner and Bernie returns to his comfortable sort of outsider position, right? And the other key question is the consequence of so many of Biden's supporters choosing him so late in the game compared to Bernie's. The enthusiasm 
chasm gap between their supporters is really noteworthy, right? So even, I mean, if you think about it, Representative Clyburn held out until the very last minute. <laughs> you know, so half the voters in Oklahoma didn't decide until the last few days. And but right of those people who decided at the last minute, Biden won over 40 percent of them. And that's I mean, that's just really remarkable. We'll just have to wait and see how Bernie's supporters respond to this big shift in momentum that's happened. It's possible that Bernie's people could just fold in the states that are ahead. They could also surge. And based on past performance, what they did four years ago, this is probably more likely. I keep thinking I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Biden had also bombed on the South Carolina debate. And I know there's a lot of what ifs, but I know that because he did so well, I mean, that definitely, I mean, so well for compared to his other debates, that really well, helped. 10,000 what ifs, right? Yeah, no, I, mean, I know. That, this so is a whole right. election so what cycle if of what Corey if, what Booker if. And Kamala Harris I've, I've definitely been thinking that this morning and what if, <laughs> lots of what ifs. Yeah. But we've got this. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it's what if and what is. <laughs> yes, right. I'm trying to keep my mind in the what is. So what exactly does the calendar look like going forward, Steve? Right. So it is important to bear in mind the things about California, California taking a long time to count because it's the biggest state, 400 delegates, as we talked about. So that's going to be ongoing. And so the exact delegate allocation for California will become gradually clear over the next few weeks. And then basically we have clusters of states voting every Tuesday for the rest of the month. And so next Tuesday, the 10th and then 17th and 24th. And then there's an additional cluster of votes from the April 4th to the 7th, that Saturday to that Tuesday. And then there's this big gap in April where there's no contest for three weeks at all. And so this, you know, we've seen so much happen in three days, and then there's going to be three entire weeks of nothing. And then at the end of April, New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland are all going to vote, and those will all be big delegate states. So I keep thinking it's so interesting the way uh, our system works because there's this long, drawn-out calendar, and there's all these voters who may have been thinking that they were going to vote for somebody else, and now they're needing to figure out plan B. And, and those are big states, right? Yeah, no, those particularly, if it's still neck and neck and un, undecided by the end of April, when New York, Pennsylvania and Maryland vote, that could be the day where it gets more officially resolved. Yeah, as a Marylander, it'll be fun to actually have an influential vote. We'll, we'll see what happens, right? You, so you, one... You've been a, Mar- a Marylander for about 15 minutes, <laughs> like, Julie, I've is that right? I've never heard you, Julie. <laughs> I was like, who is she talking about, the oh, Marylander? it's just so fun to I, be able to always vote, like you a, know, after living in D.C. all that you're time. You're always talking about yourself as a Texas. Texas. Oh, I'm really a Texan, but yeah. you know. <laughs> no, I know. My voter reg card says Maryland for now. So one last thing to note is that we have only four Latino heavy states to go. Um, that's the, the two battlegrounds. Well, I like to consider them both battlegrounds of Arizona and Florida. And then we have Illinois and New York coming up. And given how well Sanders has been performing with Latinos, especially relative to among African-Americans, this definitely bodes well for Biden, right? And um, it bodes well it, because there aren't that many additional states beyond those that have large exactly. Latinos. Right. Yes. So Latinos comprise 11 percent of the registered Democratic Party voters in the upcoming states, whereas African-Americans are 25 percent of the ones that are left to vote. Yeah. And so that, that's just a critical point. That I just want to and we've mentioned before to keep emphasizing is it's been largely lost to political strategy is the centrality of African-American votes in the choosing the Democratic nominee and that it was fundamental to and it's kind of lost to the narrative around 
you know, Obama's rise. People talk about, oh, he did so well in caucus states and this and that. No, it was the black vote that propelled him to the lead um, that actually had. And then and even in those states that Julie was mentioning, in Florida, Illinois, and New York, that have large Latino populations, they also have large black populations. And even Texas has a large black population. It doesn't get as, as much attention. But the 21% of the voters in Texas were African-American. 30% were Latino, but they had a significant African-American part. So that constellation is going to continue to also make it hard for Bernie to, to make up ground. Which leads me to a question, Steve. I have been asking myself, and I wanted to ask you, where my Asians at? <laughs> I want to find out about it. What do we know about the Asian American vote? Yeah, so it's it's a really important question. It's like completely overlooked constituency, right? For all again the obsession, you know, the white suburban voters, et cetera, and even a place like California. What's also completely lost is that Asians are seventeen percent of the eligible voters in California, and people wow. don't even really fully appreciate that that dynamic. So, fortunately, there are now some um, exit polls, and we do have some data around the Asian vote. And so, very interesting findings in that is that Sanders won handily among Asian Americans across the states that they actually polled. So he got 39% of the vote, and 21% of Asian Americans went to Biden. So I thought that was an interesting piece. And then another interesting finding to me was that one of the main reasons that they support Bernie is because of his stand on health care. And so that was fascinating to me because I also heard there was an interview on NPR, an NPR podcast with a Latina from Texas talking about part of why she liked Bernie is because of his healthcare positions and his social democracy orientation. And so the conventional wisdom is that Bernie's healthcare and Medicare for all positions are too radical and they turn off voters. But what these polls are showing is that that's actually core to the reason he's winning support, certainly among Latinos and among Asian Americans. Really interesting. Thanks for giving me the lowdown on that. So there you go, folks. That's the math. And it looks like Biden is currently in a strong position to become the eventual nominee. So I want to just quickly ask, can we talk about how we're feeling about all this? I know that I've been having feelings about Warren dropping out. So I'm going to be honest. There's, you know, I was hoping that she would do better, that she would be in the race longer. And I know, Julie, you've been venting on Facebook about Latinos being overlooked overall. So let's just start with Warren. What do we think happened and why do we think things didn't go as well for her? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say I think that these are all complicated and interconnected, right? Because there's, like, there's going to be also, you know, important debrief or whatnot around what happened with Kamala and what happened with Corey. And they're somewhat interconnected. And so Warren's kind of in that situation as well. But there's a fundamental factor that I feel has been a major um, component that doesn't actually get enough attention. And that it is, it's sexism and it's institutionalized sexism. And I think it's played a big role in a couple of different ways. Most uh, significantly and dramatically, I mean, she, Warren was surging in the fall. She was seen as the person, she was going to be the progressive standard bearer. She was seen the one who could actually carry Bernie's politics, but also appeal more broadly without scaring people in the same way and not having the, the, the socialist you know, moniker. And then she just got savaged around how is she going to pay for Medicare for all. And the cumulative attack on her for that is what stalled her momentum and what mm -hmm. really started to pull her down. 
But Bernie has the exact same Medicare for All plan, and he has even fewer <laughs> answers around how to pay for it. That's right. But she's the one but who paid the political price for that. She had to bear the brunt so, of the, the criticism. So that, I feel like, was definite double standard, and that really impacted her. And the other factor is what, we, you know, what we've covered in a, in, in a previous episode, this white man's bump concept. There is this you know, now actually empirically proven through you know, research data belief among many people in the Democratic electorate that a white man has a better chance of beating Trump. And that a woman has a worse chance and a person of color has a worse chance. And so she clearly suffered from that belief as well. And the number of people who said, oh, I like Warren, but I don't think she could win, is, um, was considerable. And I don't think she could overcome that. And Julie and Steve, I want you to guys to talk a little bit about, there was this kind of exchange you guys were having over a line from Biden's victory speech. Veterans, dreamers, single moms, and by the way, Every dreamer, have hope because I'm coming and you're not going anywhere. So I wanted to find out, how did that line come off to each of you? Well, so to be clear, I read the words. I didn't actually hear them delivered by Biden. So take that into consideration. So so I grew up fighting against the mantra that I'm, quote, not going anywhere. So mm. when I read those words, it was really jarring. <laughs> Really? And with with the state, Biden so said high, something that was jarring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just telling you my experience going through. So, what, to me, I think the the most striking thing is that with the stakes so high, you'd expect Biden to have someone helping him with his speech on election night for Super Tuesday, right? And especially when it comes to messaging for Latinos, who you know we are seeing increasingly with each new set of primaries, they haven't been supporting him in droves. And so I just think that a little more thought should have gone into what he was going to say about the whole issue of dreamers, about immigration in general. And yeah, so when I when I heard the words, you're not going anywhere, that was just problematic. Let's just say so you me. took it as like you're stuck in your lot in life. You're not yeah. going to accomplish anything. You're not going to get yeah. to Stanford University from right. San Antonio. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I know that's not what the sentiment anybody would ever be expressing, you know, on a stage on election night. But it was just it was awkward and odd to me. And it just wasn't the thing that I think needed. You know what? You know, what's interesting about the speechwriter part, because it was written and that I think to his credit. So is that if you if you watch the full clip, actually, he stops himself because there's words coming afterwards. He said because he's talking about you know, the dreamers and immigration. And that's first thing, I actually was quite moved by it and, and quite pleased to see somebody standing up and saying something about immigration after it's been completely yeah. ignored throughout the race. And so I just thought actually it was well, quite... Well, since Castro dropped out, right? Yes, yes. So, but to say, you know, for a candidate for president, a former vice president, say to the dreamers, I'm coming. And he meant to say, I'm coming and I'm going to help you. And so I was quite, I thought that was quite compelling. One of his better moments What's also interesting, though, is that he starts to say something about and the other guy and that if that in that situation, the line was scripted and the scripted line was Bernie's bad on this. But he saw it and he stopped himself mid sentence. And he says, I'm not going to go there. I thought that was, she was quite interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm going to need to go back and watch the actual clip then in see the whole the visual as well as the um the sound on that that is all really interesting i I kind of when i hear these things happen to biden it reminds me of my dad he's like this immigrant chinese man who came to this country a long time ago and so he has all these words in english but and he has really good intentions and then sometimes the words just get all jumbled and 
they can be taken out of context. And that was like when I read that line, I was like, I, I get it. It's just so poorly laid out those words. Yeah, <laughs> like the, yeah. the wrong set of words in the wrong order. Wow. But I ultimately was like, I get it. His heart is in the right place. And right. I'll give him that. So I wanted to find out like where are you guys now? Like how are you feeling? It's been an emotional roller coaster for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's uh, like I keep saying it's like a soap opera as the world turns. Like stay tuned and then things change and people your emotions are high and all over so what what are you guys feeling well i definitely was having that whole what if moment really sad that booker got out so soon i would have loved to have seen how this all played out you know with him still in the mix but i'm mainly concerned about how we're going to engage the what i consider just really critical young and sporadic voters to turn out in november right assuming that biden's the candidate because we really i mean we can't win without him right so there is going to have to be a real intentional coming together and acknowledgement of the value of that sector of of people who I feel could very easily be you know be made to feel coming out of uh, out of this whole thing that they're not valued by the party and that's that's exactly what we need to not do where are you at Charlene oh i was disappointed that Warren didn't do better didn't stay in longer I am overall disappointed that we started off with historically what was the most diverse set of candidates, diverse field. I remember how buoyed and hopeful we all felt at the beginning that we were a party that represented this sort of progress. Uh, it was diverse in gender, ethnicity, mm-hmm. race, and even sexuality. And it was it was just a great moment, just all the possibilities and kind of to find ourselves back to older white men, elderly <laughs> white men, over both over 77. <laughs> and, uh, and as Steve had reminded me, you had done the math, uh, or seeing the math somewhere that even if uh, Pete Buttigieg ran in 2060, he would be younger than yes. both these guys. Yes. So I don't know, just a little, you know, just kind of like a bit crestfallen and processing how far we've kind of, and yet how maybe far we haven't come. And that's what, where I'm at today. Yeah, no, I think I really, I mean, I got into this great intensity in December 2018, right? When we launched this Cory Booker Super PAC and really went all in, tried to harness all of his energy. So I actually, that's what everybody's talking about all this. I feel like I'm further along the stages of grief than most people are. And so I really moved, <laughs> already moved on to, okay, it's going to be one of these guys. Who's the VP? What's the long term play? How do we build up from the state? So I'm actually not having big emotions about this current. I'm kind of like, let's just, you know, get the who we're going to get and let's just go and get this dude out and start building over the long haul. So, yeah, I want to get there. I'll get there. <laughs> you will get there. Uh, all right. So still never a dull moment. And there's still a lot to pay attention to and to find out what's going to happen next. We can't wait to check in again and let you know our thoughts. Exciting times in U.S. politics. So but that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color or at Steve P. Tweets, finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.